Hey everyone, welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast. We're a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario. We're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. Hey, if you haven't been with us, we're in the third week uh, of a message series called The Problem of Jesus by Mark Clark. Mark Clark is a, uh, a great Bible teacher, and in this message series, he's teaching from his book, The Problem of Jesus, all about uh, some of the issues that people have with Jesus, who he was and what he did. This week, he's talking specifically about miracles. Maybe you've uh, spoken to someone before, or maybe yourself, you've questioned the validity of miracles. What about all these supernatural occurrences in the Bible, specifically the miracles of Jesus? And what do we what do we think about them? How do we approach that subject, uh, whether we're skeptical or whether we're trying to share the faith with someone who is skeptical? Well, today, Mark's going to address that subject, and I hope this is going to be helpful for you. So grab your notepad, and uh, let's... Uh, hear what Mark Clark has to say today. Thanks for being with us. Hey guys, I'm Pastor Mark Clark. So glad that you were part of this series with us, The Problem of Jesus. Today we are exploring the problem of miracles. To the modern mind, are miracles actually legitimate? Did Jesus do them? And what do they even mean? That's what today is all about. If you got a Bible, John chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Now, this story is going to play kind of the backdrop of, of what I want to say about miracles. So on the third day, this is one of the most famous stories of Jesus. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said, they have no wine. And Jesus said, to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. She said, do what he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said, now take them to the master of the feast. They took them. And then when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first when the people have drunk freely than the poor wine. They move from the bottles to the boxes usually. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana and manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. Let that play the background of the story. A few years ago, I flew from Vancouver to Toronto to speak at a conference and I sat across the table from a guy and he looked at me and he said, do you want to know where the demons are in your house? And I was like, sorry, what? He didn't know that I'd been going through a whole bunch of stuff, walking around my house in the middle of the night, thinking there was a presence there for months. And I had actually started to wonder about a presence in my home. I had never talked to this guy in my life. And out of nowhere, he asked me that question. And then he drew on a piece of paper the exact blueprint of my home. And he said, there's a closet that connects your office to your bedroom, isn't there? I said, yeah. He says, that's where they are. They were invited there years ago and they're territorial. I was like, sorry, what? And I went home. And I cast these demons. But how would this guy ever know? Now, I don't tell you that story because I think it's a proof for the existence of God. And I'm sure a skeptic would find ways to explain all of that away. I recount it as just one of the many unusual, even supernatural experiences I've actually had in my life. What do we do with this and the many millions of stories like it held by rational, credible people? Stories that seem to defy all logic. Because here's the thing, if only one of those stories turns out to be true, then our modern naturalistic and materialistic assumptions about the world and the universe and reality fall apart. That's why I believe it takes more faith to be skeptical about miracles than it does to actually believe in them. Yes, even in this modern era, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So first... How did a rationalistic skeptic like me, especially regarding miracles and the supernatural, ever come to see them as something that made sense? Here's what we got to understand. 
There are many reasons why people reject Jesus and reject Christianity. One of the primary ones is the distrust of miracles. The Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. displays a leather-bound version of the Bible assembled by President Thomas Jefferson years ago, where the pages of the Gospels that have miracles in them are all cut out. He wanted those parts gone. That represents the kind of Jesus the modern world wants. But it was also something people wanted in Jesus' own day. Rationalists at the time of Jesus pondered his teaching, scrutinized his miracles, denied plain evidence, and sought alternative explanations for all those things, such as the devil made him do it or magical powers or whatever. Today, the thinking goes like this. We live in the modern era. Miracles don't actually happen. Therefore, Jesus couldn't have done them. And the claims that he did are simply false. This skepticism is extended to the Bible as a whole, filled with miracles from beginning to end. So you have ancient, naive, uninformed people. That's why they believe in it. Not modern scientific people. The march of science has trampled belief in the supernatural. That's what we think. So is all of that skepticism the right posture? I'm going to argue not, because instead miracles are actually probable that we're seeing now, given the kind of universe in which we find ourselves, even from a scientific perspective. See, in the naturalist view, the view where there is no God, is that really correct? Are miracles basically from that mindset, they're ruled out as impossible before we even get started? A naturalist is a person who believes that their view on nature and reality and miracles are simply the product of looking at the evidence, drawing conclusions based purely on science, experiment, and observation. First thing we got to understand about that is it's not true. If you're a naturalist, your understanding of what is allowed to happen or not happen in the universe is a philosophical approach first. You approach data and you predetermine that your experience of nature will dictate what you believe about it, that it has certain laws that can't be broken, for instance. That can be a dangerous approach. You got to approach the data with with unpredetermined understandings of what's possible. In his book on miracles, uh, Oxford professor, lifelong skeptic C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, if anything extraordinary seems to have happened, we can always say that we or they have been victims of illusion. If we hold a philosophy which excludes the supernatural, this is what we will always say. If, for instance, uh, we start out with the assumption that miracles are impossible, then no amount of historical evidence about the life of Jesus or anyone else is going to convince us otherwise. So that's not going to do. That isn't fair to the process of historical inquiry, because the matter has already been decided before the adventure has begun. And that's not the way to approach this. If miracles are possible, though immensely improbable, then the right evidence could potentially convince us that miracles have occurred. And I contend that once we're in a position to do that, we're going to see that existing evidence will be sufficient to convince us that quite a number of miracles have actually occurred. And there's the the contradiction of naturalism. So, So where do we get this idea that miracles are not possible? As I mentioned, it's actually rooted in a prior philosophical assumption, the belief that there's only nature. And some of you kind of, I grew up in that, right? A material world that we can taste, see, feel, touch, smell, and that's the only thing. There's no spiritual, there's no immaterial world. Nature's the whole show, we think. Nothing exists or happens outside of nature or natural realities uh, or the laws of nature, most famous, a hundred years ago, philosopher David Hume argued exactly that. He said, basically, nature's all that exists. We don't have any evidence that there's anything beyond it. And so let's just stop talking about it. It's problematic for a bunch of reasons. First, that whole worldview argues the laws of nature are established by a firm and unalterable experience. 
right? Based on the consistent testimony of countless people in different places and times, nature just is. So if one defines natural law as immutable, meaning unable to be changed, then of course miracles are impossible. But who can conclusively say that natural laws are unchangeable? There, there are a number of natural laws that have been overthrown by more recent scientific discoveries. Alvin Plantinga, who's one of the great philosophers of our time, talked exactly about that. He, he talked about the idea that Newton's laws were for nearly two centuries regarded as absolutely true. They worked incredibly well. No body of statements had ever been subjected to so much empirical verification. Every machine incorporated its principles. The entire industrial revolution was based on Newtonian physics and mechanics. Newton was vindicated a million times a day, Plantinga said. Yet, Einstein's theories of relativity, which came along later, contradicted Newton. Newton's laws were proven in important ways to be wrong or at least inadequate. See, in other words, scientific laws are not truly immutable. They're not laws of nature per se. They're human laws, interpretations that represent our best guess about the world and the way it works. So while David Hume insists that miracles violate the known laws of nature, in the end, there are actually no known laws of nature in the end. Like if it comes to science, so-called laws, they're always being refuted and rethought. So the need for humility in regards to conclusions about these things is overwhelming. One writer has said, a miracle is a violation of nature, right? But here's what we got to understand about that rebuttal. It's a category mistake. Lewis said this, when a thing professes from the outset to be a unique invasion of nature by something from the outside, increasing knowledge of nature can never make it either more or less credible. Meaning his point is that when someone believes in miracles, they aren't arguing that nature left alone will produce the event. They assume there's another agent acting in the event that transcends the natural order in some way, who, who, who tampers with things. In other words, miracles aren't contradictions of science. They lie outside of the realm of science. We can't prove something is, is uh, metaphysically not there when all we have to deal with is the physics. You're making metaphysical conclusions saying, oh, there's not, but all you're dealing with is soil. Now, all of that's not actually that controversial. Think of things like ethics and morality. They can't be tested and proven in a scientific way. Rarely, however, does this lead for someone to conclude that they don't exist. The philosophy of naturalism bases its predictions on the premise that things like miracles don't happen. If there are no interferences, they say. But that's the point people who believe in miracles make. By definition, miracles interrupt the usual course of nature. They must have help to do so. Catching an apple as it falls from a tree, that's the law of gravity, but it's not making it not real just because a hand got in the way. It's actually not overthrowing the law of gravity. It's just an interruption into it. Something in this case, the hand has broken the natural process of falling. That's not a contradiction. It's merely an interruption. So the argument for miracles is an argument for an X factor that goes over and above nature. That's the point. This is why a miracle is deemed supernatural, something outside of nature, exactly what Christianity claims. Not that nature by itself would give us a miracle. So the biblical claim is not that nature spit Jesus out of the grave, for instance, but that, what does Ephesians say? God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. That's the point. 
in the book of Acts. God raised Jesus up, putting an end to the agony of death. The statement says nothing that contradicts the laws of nature. It's saying that God raised Jesus from the dead. That has zero implausibility with respect to our knowledge of natural processes. One writer has said this, only if the atheist has independent reasons to think that God's existence is implausible or his intervention in the world implausible, could he justifiably regard the resurrection as implausible? So you got to say that God doesn't exist to say that miracles don't exist, which is actually a much harder task. Christianity doesn't argue that it will happen according to nature. It posits God and his supernatural power to do something beyond what nature could ever produce left to itself. So the mistake the skeptic makes with miracles is first assuming that nature is a closed system that defines the entirety of reality. The idea of miracles defies science, they say, but they don't. Naturalism as a philosophy is now seen by many people as an outdated product of 18th century thinking. It's a mechanistic portrait of nature given by the sciences of that day that exerted widespread influence on scientific conclusions, but many of those conclusions are now actually viewed as outdated and irrelevant. Often the perspective of that time is referred to as classic or the old picture of science. The new picture and the latest sciences don't conflict with miracles at all. It's the fields of biology and cosmology. The more deeply science has delved into the complexity of the universe, the more legitimate miracles have become. One writer says this, completely consistent with modern science is the deduction of miracles. To give an example, the older modernistic way of thinking held that no event could be uncaused in any way. But the entire field of quantum theory, go look up quantum mechanics today, is founded on the notion of uncaused events. Quantum theory is counterintuitive to a mind trained in older, classical, enlightened scientific paradigms to the point where it actually seems wrong. As one of the university professors uh, that I was reading recently put it, he said, if we try to define a miracle as an event that is incompatible with laws of nature, then it seems that water changing into wine, a dead man coming back to life, etc., are not miracles because they're not incompatible with quantum mechanics. The more we've learned about the universe, we realize it's super complex. And 200 years ago, they didn't know any of this stuff. See, ironically, that whole mindset recognizes the limitations of science. While arguing that miracles defy scientific laws, it also admits that those laws are technically unverifiable. Since uh, David Hume actually said this, no finite number of observations, however large, can be used to derive a general conclusion that is defensible. If one asserts, for instance, that all swans, this is what one writer was talking about, all swans are white, how could this assertion be verified? By observing 10,000 swans, a million? All it would take is one black swan to make that hypothesis false. And this is exactly what happened when Europeans landed in Australia. Till that point, Western civilization had believed all swans were white. It was an irrefutable scientific fact until our awareness of our limited perspective changed and a black swan was found. Similarly, the idea that an occurrence is impossible simply because we've never experienced or observed it is a weak argument. Before we can decide on a thing having happened or not happened, we actually have to discover whether a thing is possible. And if it's possible, how probable? That's fair. So by David Hume's own set of rules, one can't dismiss miracles. 
since it's impossible to investigate every potential miracle. In fact, as one writer has said, out of the millions of claims of miraculous events through history, it would only take one of those events being true to overthrow the entire naturalistic worldview. For instance, I was reading a book the other day uh, by Craig Keener, two volumes on miracles, and he was talking about how at all seven continents, doctors are going in and seeing that there are legitimate claims to over 200 million responses to prayer of miraculous supernatural events, healings and all these different things. If even one of those is true, if this guy really did sit across from me from a table and be able to see my house in his mind and call out something that he had no indication of, I'd never even mentioned it. I never met the guy before. If that actually happened or something like that through all of history, guys, all of naturalism falls apart because maybe there is something behind the veil. Okay, many people I meet have stories that demand some kind of explanation that cannot be simply explained by natural means. And this is not a rare occurrence. It's something I encounter every day. Perhaps I'm a pastor, so I see it more often. But the things I witness, rational, normal women that I know personally suddenly thrashing around on my office couch with eyes not their own, shouting threats at me in a male voice that stops instantly as I pray over them in the name of Jesus. I've seen people healed of once thought incurable diseases. I've had times when I'm praying and I find I have knowledge of things about people in the context of prayer that I did not know just a few minutes before. Knowledge that's confirmed when I talk to them later. Now, these aren't everyday occurrences, but they happen enough to make me sit back and take notice. Maybe there is something bigger than the natural world. Even as uh, one scholar I was reading recently pointed out, he said the periodic table of the elements. Think about something. Remember going to high school and you'd learn about the periodic table? I mean, that's immutable. That's unchanging, right? Today, it's not. As something as dependable as that is getting changed in light of quantum theory. See, this is the reality of our... The mistake many skeptics make is to equate evidence with probability. But this is a failed experiment in logic. It's like arguing a lottery winner is lying because the chance of winning the lottery are so minuscule, 76 million to one. Or that because the odds of getting dealt the perfect hand in bridge are so astronomical that it's never happened, but we know that it has. See, if it's true that we cannot believe in one-time events that are unwitnessed and mathematically improbable, then by that same logic, and that's the logic of naturalism, then you as the skeptic or the naturalist cannot believe in the Big Bang or the the idea that organic life originated through unguided evolution because we never saw it and it happened one time and it's mathematically very improbable. See, in the end, the skeptic fails to fully consider the evidence of rare events, instead focusing on the evidence for regular events and suggesting this somehow makes all rare events unworthy of belief. Now, I'm not saying any of this proves God. I'm saying simply that the skeptics are wrong to add all the evidence for all the regular events we experience each day and suggest that somehow that makes all rare events unworthy of belief. The issue is not whether an event is regular or rare, but whether we have good evidence for it. That's what we've got to look at. Admittedly, rare doesn't make something impossible. We lack complete and full knowledge of what the laws of nature even are. 
And it is unfair to say a miracle is a rare event by definition and then punish it for being a rare event. The person who believes in God agrees that a miracle is a rare event. That's the point. Okay, now all that philosophical talk's done. Let's talk about Jesus' miracles. There is no other major religion in the world in which miracles occupy so central a place as Christianity. The Gospels portray Jesus as having performed just over 30 miracles in 30 years of life. The whole Bible together, there's probably 250 miracles. That averages in Jesus' ministry to only 10 miracles a year, which is fascinating. Uh, John, one of the disciples of Jesus, tells us that Jesus did more miracles than we have recorded here. So he probably obviously did more than that. But still, the writers only record those 30 miracles. So why only those ones? It's interesting. The gospel writers are actually showing restraint in their presentation of Jesus, aren't they? Like, which actually speaks to their trustworthiness. They could have easily exaggerated or embellished the miracles, but instead they stick to plainly stating the details of those 30 miracles. So what miracles did he do? 31 separate miracles performed in the gospels. And generally speaking, they can be divided into three kinds, healings, exorcisms, and nature miracles. Uh, he's basically doing miracles over the consequences of sin, Satan and nature, right? So the total miracle account breaks down into six exorcisms, 17 healings, including three stories of raising from the dead and eight nature miracles. Only one miracle other than his resurrection makes it into all four gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. Now, we could talk about the brilliance of these miracles and and the, the fact that they happened, the fact that um, people outside of Christianity, outside the Bible claim that he did them. You know, Josephus is writing and he's going, hey, I think this guy was a miracle worker. Even the the non-Christians of the ancient world believed that this actually happened. There was evidence that it did. But what did they mean? The terminology used by first century writers points us in the right direction to understand the why and the what of Jesus' miracles. They were a sign, even John tells us that, right? Something that points to or indicates something else. I remember growing up as a kid, there were these green electrical boxes all over my town and there was always a picture of this guy being electrocuted and it's like, you know, touch this and you die. That was a picture of, and it was pointing to a reality that was very real, right? That's what the miracles are. Uh, Secondly, they they use the word of, of a wonder, like an event that causes people to be amazed or astonished. And third, a mighty work or a marvel, an act displaying great power, especially divine power. That's Those are the phrases people use. So these terms all point to the fact that the miracles were more than an attempt to better the world for a handful of people who lived 2,000 years ago. They had a theological purpose, not just a practical one. As one writer has said, the Messiah was not going to save the world by miraculous band-aid interventions. A storm calmed here, a crowd fed there. It was going to be saved by means of a deeper, darker, left-handed mystery. See, the miracles weren't an end in themselves. They relayed important messages about God, about love, about humankind, about life, the way all these things interacted with one another and how Jesus was bringing about a new way. They all pointed beyond themselves. They were about the redemption of a broken world and broken people. They weren't not miracles in the sense of just supernatural uh, for the sake of themselves. They were actually restoring the world back. They were the only natural things in a world that was unnatural, as one writer has said. A world that was demonized, a world that was wounded, and Jesus is putting it back. 
Consider the story of the man Jesus heals from blindness in John 9, right? The disciples come to him. He heals this guy of blindness. The disciples come and they go, why was this man born blind? Was it him or his parents that sinned? And Jesus heals the man and then the story pivots and and it becomes about something else. Listen to what Jesus says. I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. That's John chapter nine. See, the disciples, as well as the readers of John's gospel, are looking back to find out the answer to the question, why? Jesus redirects their attention forward, answering a different question. To what end? His answer, so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. The miracle in this sense was making a theological point, not about the one man's blindness, but about all of our blindness, everybody's blindness, your blindness, mine, to the spiritual questions. The words of Jesus are accompanied and confirmed by his works. They are the physical evidence to the world of the reality of Jesus, what he was claiming, what he was teaching, what's happening through my life and ministry right now, the restoring of all things. And let me give you little pictures of it. This is why John repeatedly uses the word sign, like we saw in the story. This was the first of his signs. A sign of what? Miracles are a sign of the new creation breaking into the old. It's, it's the piece of grass growing up through the concrete. God is no more satisfied with this earth the way it is than we are. Jesus' miracles offer a hint of what God intends to do about it. That's the point. So what are one of the stated purposes of miracles then? Right from this story in John chapter two, John tells us in verse six that there were six stone water jars filled with water. And then he tells us that their purpose was uh, the, the Jewish rites of purification. That's why they were there. And so why does John tell us that? He tells us that because here's what Jesus is doing. He's taking what was this religious ritual and he's saying, I'm gonna turn this into new wine. John's larger purpose is to show us through this miracle that the Jewish observance and ritual purification is being upstaged and superseded by Jesus. That this phase of history where humankind connected with God through religion and observance and ritual and temple and cleaning is coming to an end. It's being fulfilled by Jesus and what he's doing in the world. Jesus is doing something new and he's saying, I'm the new wine, I'm the new temple. Religion is giving way to relationship. And here we find the scandal of the miracles, the real problem. Jesus was creating in the world. What he was saying was like a hand grenade going off in that culture, upending centuries of tradition. This would have been seen as extremely offensive and controversial to John's audience. How do I know? A few years ago, I was in Israel and I was doing a tour. We went to Cana. We went to the place where they say this wedding took place and there was six stone water jars there, big. And I went and I did a devotional and there was like a hundred people around and I did this devotional. I said exactly what I just told you. And my Jewish guide, Abraham, later on pulled me aside and he said, are you serious about what you said back there? And I said, yeah, of course. He said, I've done this tour with 200, 300 Christian groups in my life and I've never heard anyone say that that's what that story was about. Do you really think that that's what Jesus was trying to say, that this era and epoch of salvation history has ended and it's giving way to this new one that Jesus is bringing? I said, yes. And of course we started to talk. He's like, I got to rethink my whole life in light of this. Jesus wasn't just healing people or doing marvelous things. He was more than a doctor or a magician. He was doing something that meant something bigger to the larger world. It was an invitation 
So here's the last question we got to answer. What does this mean for you and me? It means transformation. That's the point of it all. Jesus doesn't want us to miss the fact that this miracle and all of them are about transformation of our lives. Jesus came to save and transform normal, everyday, stale, water-in-a-pot existence to something sweet and colorful, something that affects the senses and stimulates the very soul of people. The real transformation of water into wine, in that sense, is about us at the end of the day. That's what John wants us to see. It's about, it's about your anger problem. It's about the guilt that you still live with because you did that thing you can't forget. It's about the materialism you can't shake, that addiction that makes you feel worthless. It's, it's the story that promises to take the bland ruins of our tasteless lives and make them sweet again. Jesus is creating something new, something so good that the world, when it tastes it like that wine, it's never going to be satisfied with anything else. Uh, 10 or 11 years ago, we were starting a church and we got together and the team, 16 people that started Village Church in my house uh, had to come up with a mission statement. And the mission statement we came up with was to see people transformed into fully devoted followers of Jesus. And while that might feel generic, that purpose statement, that mission statement could be on any church, I guess, but we intentionally focused on the word transformed. See, Christianity is more than a set of teachings or a philosophy of life. It's an offer of a living, breathing relationship with God, which transforms your life. My son who was dead is alive, says the father in the prodigal son story. Is that your life? Like Jesus is still doing miracles. He he transforms us from the selfish, idol-driven, sinful, hopeless people that we were into something entirely different so that we spend money differently. We treat our spouse and our friends differently, even strangers. That we raise our children differently, that we do our jobs differently. Everything changes when it's put into the hands of Jesus and it changes, what does the master of the feast say? For the better. These things were used for purification, but now there's something better. Usually you break, pull out the good wine and then it gets worse. But you, this later wine is actually better than the first version. The Christian word for this is sanctification. Jesus changes our minds, our souls, our bodies from what we used to value and celebrate and take joy and pleasure in to something else entirely. Now, Here's a question for all of us. What about when that miracle doesn't happen? If you grew up not going to church like myself, then you probably weren't exposed to conversations about miracles very often. I didn't sit around the dinner table at my house and talk about this stuff. It just wasn't part of my experience. But if you did grow up in church, then miracles are part of your conversation, right? That pe- people testify to parking spaces that opened up in a busy mall and the house the Joneses wanted that they couldn't afford, but now they got it. And the healing of these diseases, of course, there are all those more serious prayers and the cancer and things that got uh, healed and transformed, unbelievable. But then there are the times when the miracles don't happen. I, uh, I buried two dads, one bi- biological father and my stepfather, And I prayed for both of them that they would be healed and both of them died. See, in our life, the reality is every time we celebrate a miracle, the backside of that celebration is a question. Why not that one miracle I needed? 
Why not just one more in the life of that family or that mother or that child or me? The crucial question is present in the story of water being turned into wine. It shows us that we can't control God, that we don't get to tell God when he's going to heal somebody. And we don't get to tell God how he's going to heal somebody. Mary comes to Jesus and Jesus says, woman, it's not my time. In other words, you don't get to tell God how or when or if he's going to heal somebody. Take this cup of suffering from me, Jesus said. God answers, no. In the midst of all the pain, there's stuff happening that we can't see. There's a story going on which all of this has a place. Jesus promises, not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father, he says. But he says that, amazingly, in the midst of a series of dire warnings to the 12 disciples, predicting arrest, persecution, and death. See, it's not that we won't face trial and difficulty in our lives if we follow Jesus, but that we are safe in doing so. That's his point. Even if and inevitably when his answer to our prayer for a miracle is no. We shouldn't miss the fact that there aren't more miracles in Jesus' ministry. After all, he could have done so many, as many as he wanted, eradicating all disease, all sickness permanently. Why 36 separate miracles when he could have done thousands? Why so few? I think it's because Jesus knows something we know but refuse to embrace. That in life, There are no easy, quick answers. That when we face demons in our life, the answer most often is not deliverance, but discipleship. That porn addiction or shopping addiction doesn't just disappear overnight. It takes time and hard work. The road that leads to life is narrow and very few find it because it's the hard road to transformation, not seen or felt in a power encounter or a flashy instant, but hard fought in the dark when no one is looking. On our knees and amidst the sweat and the tears and the confusion. But the miracle stories say, don't despair. God is there. Father, I pray for that comfort to reach every heart and mind watching this right now. We all pray for miracles to happen in our lives and the lives of the people around us. And sometimes they don't or they don't in the way that we would deem it right. And I pray that we take the comfort of the fact that we trust you and that you're doing a beautiful thing in the midst of the world and you have a plan and you're bringing about transformation, transforming not what we do, but what we want to do, what we value, what we love. And you're doing that even in the midst of the difficult times, even when it looks like you're not doing a miracle, you come through in the end. That the gospel's beautiful message to us is not that we'll never die, but that we're safe in dying. Not that we'll never face trial or sickness or suffering, but that ultimately we're safe in doing so because from your perspective, You are working on us not to have a good 80 years, but an 80 million after that, an 80 million after that. And Jesus, let that perspective comfort us, challenge us, change us to the core of who we are. In your good name we pray, amen. 
Hey, thanks for tuning in this week. We appreciate your support. And uh, by listening and subscribing to this podcast, you are helping us to reach more people. If you'd like to connect with us, you can go to our website, pathwaylife.com. You can follow us on our YouTube channel, Pathway Church PTBO. And uh, we'd love to get to know you. Reach out and uh, we would love to support you in any way we can to help you become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. Until next time, have a great week.